Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. Once again, in this episode, we're going to be doing some counter-programming. Right before the coronavirus crisis blew up in Massachusetts and everywhere else, Peter Kadzis and I had a fascinating conversation with Elizabeth Cohen. She's a history professor at Harvard and the author of an excellent new biography of Ed Logue, the urban planner who played a huge role in determining the way Boston and New York City look today. The book is titled Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age. And it is a worthy read for anyone who's fortunate enough to be hunkered down at home right now. But first, after Peter and I offered a generally upbeat assessment of Charlie Baker's coronavirus leadership in our last episode, we heard from some mutual acquaintances who thought we were being too generous. So a few hours ago, Peter and I got together on Zoom, and I asked him if that pushback had him rethinking his take on the governor's performance. Well, given the recent Globe poll, I think it's pretty clear that people are rating Baker on their, uh, I was going to say preconceived, but that's not correct, on their basically partisan stance. Those people who tend to be critical of the governor have been more critical of his performance to date than those who were generally favorable to him. I can understand that. Um, first of all, it's human nature. Secondly, Baker's style doesn't bring you in. I think it serves him well with the general public, a sort of just the facts, ma'am, just the facts approach. But he seems begrudging and sometimes uncomfortable when he's at the podium. And by the way, um, this is an uncomfortable situation, if I may revel and understatement for a bit. Does that make sense, Adam? Yeah, I think it does. I, I watched for the first time, and I don't know how it took me this long, but I watched one of the Andrew Cuomo pressers uh, the other day and was struck, as much as I think Baker has gotten better at the tonal piece, there was a radical difference there in the way they approached this. You got the impression that Cuomo was trying to speak not just to New York, but to the nation and to offer inspiration when it comes to dealing with this. And Baker, well, he'll you know give the occasional exhortation. Uh, it, you don't get the impression that he's trying to offer a call to arms as much as an assessment of where we're at right now and a very sober take on where things are going. I think one of Baker's long-term strengths is he has no national ambitions, or if he does, he, he sublimates them really effectively. Massachusetts is about to head into the red zone. The governor himself said that the peak, the, the surge in the pandemic is expected between April 7th and April 17th. Doctors I've spoken to they, they think it'll be particularly bad the 12th through the 15th. It's all speculation, you know, based on numbers and the rates of growth. But Baker, Baker sees himself as having a local job to do, and his style has been very effective in Massachusetts. You know, Cuomo's faced with a, 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 a Chinese sort of situation 
he's a more voluble guy. And no doubt, maybe toying with ideas of the presidency himself. It's natural to compare the two, but it's sort of apples and oranges. That being said, let me ask you about something that Michelle Wu, the Boston City Councilor, said when I talked to her, as you know, you were my editor on this piece that I did uh, when Baker finally announced the statewide stay in place advisory. Wu and some of the other Baker critics who I spoke with for that story gave him credit for taking the step, but she specifically said, I wish that the governor would get out ahead of these things more and not have to be coerced. You know, she had signed the open letter that was started by state rep uh, Mike Connolly. She said, you know, the letter was out, there was pressure on social media, and then the governor took this step that a lot of people agreed was actually a no-brainer. It'd be great down the road if he would just take that step first without the pressure from the outside having to nudge him into it. Does she have a point there? I don't think so. I think she falls into the category of, um, you know, people who aren't enemies of Baker but are, are not political supporters. Um, I don't know. My gut is that the outside, quote, pressure, unquote, had very little to do with anything. I think Baker's playing according to his own game plan. I think he's very aware of the need to maintain um, the support of the governed, the governed, the consent of the governed. Um, I think that's one reason why he shies away from using the term shelter in place. Um, he, he keeps pointing out, um, saw that voce, but that, you know, we have no enforcement mechanism. Now, maybe that will change if things get very bad in the coming weeks, but I think he's doing a pretty good job of explaining himself. You just have to be willing to, to listen to what he's saying. And Adam, by the way, I'm somewhat surprised at my, uh, my defense of the governor, but I think it's really important for all of us to understand that Governor Baker and Mayor Walsh are facing something that in their wildest dreams they never conceived of. I mean, I can think back to when I was a little boy and remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, nuclear war was a threat that everyone that was on everyone's mind or on most people's minds a lot of the time. A pandemic clearly has not been. Of course, this topic is not going anywhere. So if you have a chance, we'd love to get your take on how the governor and other elected officials are doing in this very unsettling time. Send us an email. We're at scrum at WGBH.org, and we'll try to get your thoughts into an upcoming pod. But now it's time to go coronavirus-free with Elizabeth Cohen. She's the Howard Mumford Jones Professor of American Studies at Harvard and the author most recently of Saving America's Cities, Ed Logue and the Struggle to Renew Urban America in the Suburban Age, which won the coveted Bancroft Prize for Excellence in American History right after she talked with me and Peter. One of Cohen's goals is to rescue Logue from the condescension of posterity. For a lot of people in Boston and elsewhere, his name and the very concept of urban renewal have become epithets. 
And Cohen wants to make us rethink that. Take a listen. Let me run a statement past you. Thanks to the bicentennial, Kevin White sort of laid claim to the reputation of it was on his watch that Boston became, and I hate this phrase, but Boston became a world-class city. But I've always thought a lot of the foundation for this was laid by Collins. Am I overstating the no, case? No, I think that's right. And But, you know, Collins stepped down yeah. before he could get the sort of the, the credit and the benefits so that, for example, City Hall was finished just as Collins uh, was stepping down. I think he spent one day in the new office he, just he did. for— you're, you're, He spent a day in there so he could— Just so he could experience what he had invested so much in. Um, so, you know, I think that—and and Quincy Market, as I said, had been saved, but nothing had been done with it. So Kevin White deserves—definitely deserves credit for seeing these things through. But I think there was already an excitement— um, that the city was turning around. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you another question that th this is sort of jumping ahead, but I don't think people realize that in the period we're talking about, the idea of real estate developers or insurance companies or banks contributing to municipal candidates was considered almost a form of a shakedown. Um, and that certainly plagued Kevin White. He was never found guilty of anything. But campaign finance reform has more or less—what I'm broadly calling campaign finance reform—has created since then all these legal venues for legal rivers, tributaries, whatever. Conduits, yeah. Conduits. That's the word I was looking for, conduits. How is the role of money in— local politics different today than it was when Ed Logue was in business? Well, that's interesting. We should say that, um, because we haven't talked about him as somebody who was even involved in politics, that when he, he stepped down as head of the BRA to run for mayor uh, in the summer of 1967 in a 10-person race uh, which where there was a, a vote in September, and then there would be a runoff in November of the two finalists. Um, and that's an, an interesting case to look at, to see where the money was coming from. Um, because you're right that we're certainly more conscious of money in politics today, but I think that's because there's much more money in politics today. I don't think there was nearly as much spending on races, as we have experienced in the most recent decades, that led to some reform, not as much as we might want. So the group that actually rallied to support Logue's mayoral campaign was not developers. Um, and he didn't raise that much money. But there was a group of architects, architects for Logue, who uh, really did make contributions, and the, the, the documents for all that are in the Yale papers, uh, led by many of the architects who got work out of urban renewal and who also felt that 
government investment in building was leading to some very important civic projects that wouldn't have otherwise happened. So it wasn't just mercenary. It was also a sense that, you know, finally, we're actually getting building a modern city here. Um, You you know, this is a footnote to our conversation. But again, I remember uh, I was a student at Boston Latin School at the time, and I remember John Sears's campaign. He was a Republican. That's the same election. Yes, same election. John Sears, maybe the last Republican to run for mayor of Boston. I'm not sure about that. But the first time I heard about environmentalism as a movement was from the Sears campaign, Hmm. who talked about the need to, he said, Boston's doing a good job of building and developing and all, but we have to protect you know, we ha- wow. have to protect the—he didn't use the term, you know, our lived environment. But it a was— A different breed of Republican cat, huh? Very different. Well, very Boston. Um, but I just throw that That's in as a footnote. That's very interesting because 67 is early. You know, Earth Day is like 1970. Yeah. Um, so I should say that there were three candidates in that 10-person race who basically were carving up a lot of the same— um, support base. Um, Sears, Logue, um, and Kevin White all lived in Beacon Hill, and they had very similar kind of liberal, semi-elite constituencies. And what we need to say is that Louise Day Hicks was also in that race and was the front runner, and got the most votes in uh, the September race election. And so what happened was that the, the kind of anti-Louise uh, Day Hicks, anti-segregated schools um, vote decided we better rally around one candidate. And White became that candidate because he was already well known. He was the in the in state government as uh, secretary of state for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so Logue and Sears were basically competing against White, who had been anointed as the the favored candidate. And White managed to beat Louise Day Hicks, but not by a lot. No, but I, I think that's because Kevin White was tapped into um, the same energy that the Kennedy family tapped into. And by that, I don't mean glamour and good looks, although he certainly had that. um, It it was the rising aspirations of the the working class who had middle-class aspirations for their children. I came from such a family, and I can remember talking seriously with my parents about why they were supporting white over Hicks. And I remember my dad saying, Louise Day Hicks looks backwards, Kevin White looks ahead. And uh, by the way, the part of Dorchester I grew up in, it was always tight, but it always went for White. It's interesting. You know, White was a very interesting character because he both had this position in state government. He was in Beacon Hill. But perhaps most importantly, he his family was very well connected politically. His father and his father-in-law were both major yes. politicians. And so that it was a very networked uh, family. And so he had both, you know, the old machine people as well as the kind of forward-looking types you're talking about, very much inflected by the Kennedy era. Um, 
So he won and he kept winning, uh, though, you know, Kevin White's an interesting character in that he always hoped to go beyond Boston and he never managed to. Your book about Logue made me think that Logue was also representative of a certain sort of public servant, um, very much a, a product of his time or the, the, the sort of public servant who defined the time. I'm not sure which. Um, Elliot Richardson's name comes to mind. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that when Elliot Richardson became attorney general, he called Harvard Law School and said, who's your brightest Irish Catholic student? Because he thought the AG's office needed to diversify. Uh, Logue was part of the um, the culture of expertise, if you will, that has now been so denigrated over the years in, in, in long before Trump. But you've got Elliot Richardson. You have Michael Dukakis, who is an elected official. You had Ed Logue. Could you talk a little bit about the sort of sociology of this type of public servant? I want to say something about um, the values that he kept close to him that you're touching on. Um, one is definitely a confidence in expertise, and the other is a feeling that government can do good. And that comes out of the New Deal um, and his real political roots in the possibilities that Roosevelt had kind of laid out in taking on the, the, the challenges of the Great Depression. Um, and the feeling was that, that, on Logue's part and many others, that um, that what got us out of the Depression and what la lived on was this great competence of the expert together with resources that were really only available at the at the federal level. Um, and that was really his—the guiding principles that he worked with for many years. But what I try to track in the book is his contending with the decline in both of those. So in terms of expertise, he has to come to grips with the fact that um, you need to involve communities in making change in the city. And he learns that on the job in Boston. He, he learns it again as he moves on to New York State. And by his last job in the South Bronx, he recognizes that he has to partner with communities, that expertise is important, but only um, when it comes with uh, community buy-in. The other issue of what government can do is a, a, a huge— um, attraction to him, and then a great disappointment as he lives through enormous changes at the federal level. Begins with Nixon in the 70s, who cuts back spending on cities and on housing as part of his new federalism agenda, and it gets much worse under Reagan, who basically slashes the federal budget in the area of housing and promotes an alternative policy of leaving uh, the support of cities and the building of, of subsidized housing to the private sector. And Logue makes, has to make that transition. And when I look at his last major job in the South Bronx, I'm watching him contend with a very different environment. Can you offer any characterization of how 
Logue was viewed by communities of color in Boston who, as you know, have for decades said that they are getting the short end of the stick when it comes to development. Did they see him as an ally or as someone who betrayed the hopes they had for him or maybe as something else? It's a very important question because it highlights the variation in experience and um, in reactions. And it it pushes us to recognize that we can't make one simple generalization across all communities of color. And even within the African-American community, to assume that everybody saw the situation the same way. So, for example, the community that welcomed Logue and the new powerful BRA more than any other community was the middle-class black community of Washington Park in Roxbury. They were fighting to um, revitalize and protect one of the only, if not the only, communities in Boston where they could buy and own their own homes. Um, it had been a Jewish neighborhood pre predominantly, and African Americans had been buying homes, and they were very much feeling threatened by more low-income African Americans coming to Boston from the South, moving into the neighborhood. And they, like many middle-class homeowners, um, wanted to protect their investment, but they also recognized they had very few options for where they could live. So that community, um, which was organized around Freedom House, welcomed Logue with, with open arms. Not very far away uh, was a more low-income African-American community surrounding Madison Park that was faced with a plan to develop uh, what was called the Campus High School at the time, became Madison Park High School. Um, and they responded to that by saying, well, we'd certainly like a new high school because the schools were falling apart in Boston um, at the time, but we'd also want more affordable housing. And they organized very effectively and ultimately got, um, you know, what they wanted, uh, the building of uh, subsidized housing in that same area around the high school. And is that something that they got under Logue's yes. tenure? Okay. Through— uh, organizing. It became one of the first CDCs in Boston, even in the country. Um, and, Community Development Corporation. And, right. Is and, our and so know. they were, um, they, you know, they were able to put pressure on the BRA to deliver for them. So it's, there's no one simple answer. I should say that I interviewed Mel King and had a very interesting conversation with him. And whereas I expected that he would say, you know, urban renewal, all bad, that's not what he said. He said that there were many problems with urban renewal, but it gave him the opportunity to organize the community in the South End. He was very active at that time um, and to call for a much more public process of community engagement with urban redevelopment, which would not have been possible if it was not a federally funded project that required a public process. And he himself pointed to the extent to which today we are moving out of that realm by basically letting developers dictate what they want rather than having it be a government-driven process. Which can happen because there's no federal strings exactly. attached, right? Right. So he had, um, you know, of course, criticisms for the original plan. He himself had grown up in the New York Street area in a very diverse community. 
and was horrified to discover that that community had been condemned in the 1950s Pre-log, as a slum. Prelogue, as a slum, uh, he became very involved in in organizing um, for more housing. He, after Logue left, he was a key person in the tent city occupation that did lead ultimately to the tent city housing. Um, but he recognized that there was room for communities to put pressure on when we were functioning within, you know, the public realm. As you know, Elizabeth, Logue and his BRA have become dirty words of a sort for a certain segment of the population here in Boston, including some politicians. I am guessing that you saw this report that was put out about the Boston Redevelopment Authority, now the BPDA, by City Councilor Michelle Wu last year. Wu is someone who's talked about as a possible mayoral contender, a non-Boston native. She's from Chicago who has become a real player on the local scene. And she points to the unification of the planning and redevelopment functions that Logue created as, I think I would say, one of the original sins in uh, in Boston politics. Maybe original is too strong. A, a recent sin of note in Boston no, politics. No, I think you're awfully close. And I want to just read a little quote from um, the counselor's report and then get you to, to reflect on, on these criticisms. She wrote in this report that came out uh, last year, the Prudential Insurance Saga, which we've talked about, marked the first instance of the BRA prioritizing one big-name project at the expense of coherent and democratic citywide planning. It would not be the last. The authority's board members, appointed by the mayor and governor and removed from city council oversight, could approve projects in accordance with powerful developers' goals within the city, rather than the people's vision for their communities. This remains true today. What do you think of that line of critique? Well, of course I know the report. And I should say that I'm glad to have this back in the conversation. I think it's an important conversation for Boston to have today when it faces um, such a crisis around affordable housing, around other infrastructure. So I applaud that. But I think that the report oversimplifies what urban renewal it was and became, and in all the ways that I've tried to suggest here, that it's a much more evolutionary—was a much more evolutionary process. And what the BPDA does today is really nothing like what the BRA was doing in the 1960s. They are much more pressured and, and want to invite much more community input. Um, people may not like every decision they make, but they are also— having to cope with an, a contemporary environment where cities are forced to try to attract investment to get any resources to do anything. So if you're going to have affordable housing, you have to have market-rate housing that you can then force inclusionary units into. Because the federal government is, is no not, longer— Is out of the business. Right. So that, I think, is a very important point. So I think that, you know, there's been this, um, you know, real— a, a very—a changing environment over time. And I want to say one other thing, that I, um, I, I worry about um, promoting a political forum for decision-making around the redevelopment issues. To put it back into city council 
is an issue that needs to be really thought through, because it could very much politicize decision-making in a way that could be very dangerous for the city. What about having uh, planning functions in part of city government, redevelopment functions in another separate part, in a way that aims to insulate them from political interference or excessive politicization, while at the same time recognizing that they don't necessarily go hand in hand. Well, that, you know, there's a lot to that. A lot of cities do have those separated. The argument that Logue and many of his ilk made in the 1960s is that the risk you run when you do that is that planners plan in the abstract and have very little responsibility for what happens, and redevelopers aren't part of the planning process. So I think there are pros and cons on both sides. I think it's very important to have many checks, particularly by communities, on proposals. But I hope that the Wu report has opened up the discussion, but it isn't providing the only response. Just wanted to make an observation, and uh, Elizabeth went a long way towards addressing my concerns about Wu's report. Um, allowing the Boston City Council a say in the development of Boston is the road to perdition. Um, but there's a challenge that Mayor Walsh faces right now, and it's twofold, that if he doesn't become—if he's not more flexible— about community input to development, um, and he's not more flexible about receiving community input on the schools, that I think it's entirely possible that the the so-called Boston miracle could come to an end in a few years, in, in the bad old days of dirty political infighting could return. By the way, return to a much more affluent city, but... Um, there's a lot to be learned from Boston's past history, and many of the progressive reformers don't appreciate how bad Boston was before. And that, I think, was one of the highlights of a wonderful book, that it tells the story of Boston through the person of Ed Logue in a way that comports with at least the reality I know. <laughs> I have one question I want to run by you before we let you go. And I'm, I'm sorry. like that was the ending. <laughs> well, the, truth is, the truth is, it may be such a perfect note to end on that we added this out. So, right, right. Uh, but, but I want to ask you just before you get out of here about this Robert Moses, Jane Jacobs dichotomy mm. that you are attempting to problematize, if that's the right word, by reminding people about Ed Logue and and everything that he represented. Can you talk about the two of them and how he maybe complicates the easy opposition that's been set up between Moses and Jacobs? Um, I think we have simplified uh, what urban renewal and urban redevelopment means by setting up this very stark dichotomy between Robert Moses, bad, Jane Jacobs, good. Um, and we kind of lose the complexity of the issue. And so one of the things I was trying to do is say, you know, that doesn't get us very far, that uh, if we look at Logue's relationship to both of them, he was critical of both of them, really. He, he liked certain things that Robert Moses did, um, 
I, he liked his beaches. He liked his playgrounds. He even liked his free highways, because remember, Logue was a road guy. Um, but he certainly didn't like his solutions to housing. He didn't like his sort of, um, you know, arrogance, authoritarian sort of approach to uh, redevelopment. On the part of Jane, on the, the other side with Jane Jacobs, um, Logue felt that her view that you should let neighborhoods develop organically um, and that planners should not be involved was an indulgence that perhaps worked for her West Village neighborhood, but um, was not a strategy that would work for all income groups in a city. And he felt that she was giving a pass to people who were getting rich off of cities, suburbanites who could go home to their suburbs at night, or businesses that, you know, had their offices downtown but then had no responsibility. Um, and he and Jane Jacobs had a very notorious debate at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where they kind of fought this out. I describe it in the book. And Logue reveals during this debate that he had um, gone to her street the night before and hidden and watched what it looked like at 8 o'clock at night and said he didn't see all those eyes on the street and all that ballet on the sidewalk. Uh, it was pretty empty, as far as uh, he noted. And it should also be said that there's a good reason why Jane Jacobs is held out by people on the libertarian right, for sure, not just the kind of populist left as a hero, because they like the idea that she doesn't see government or the public sector intervening and just letting what they think will be the market decide what's going to you know, work in a city. So. Um, you know, I think there are pros and cons on both sides. There are things to be learned from Moses and from Jacobs. Um, and I would say that Logue actually learned from both of them. Um, and I also want to mention that I'm not trying to make Logue into any kind of a hero. I try very hard in the book to be even-handed, um, to recognize uh, where he did good things and that there were often quite progressive uh, goals in his work. For example, we haven't even touched on the fact that he really prized mixed-income communities, and he worked very hard to try to create that, particularly when he got into a statewide position in New York State when he headed the New York Urban, Redevelop Urban Development Corporation. Um, so that's important. He also pushed very hard in New Haven and in Boston and then again in New York State for metropolitan decision-making and problem-solving, not just leaving cities with all the difficulties of uh, low-income populations, but forcing the whole metropolitan area to take some responsibility. So there were some very positive things he sought, though it needs to be said that he didn't have a lot of tools to accomplish them. On that note, we should give you a chance to, to go back to real life and your day job. But I have to second what Peter said. The book is such a pleasure to read. There is so much fascinating information there, and it is so well written. So congratulations on the book. And I think we can say on the award as well. Thank you very much. And that is going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. Thanks to Elizabeth Cohen for talking with us. And as always, to you for making time to listen, especially right now. Subscribe to The Scrum. Rate us if you haven't already. 
and definitely let us know whether you think Governor Baker, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, and other elected officials in Massachusetts are or are not rising to the challenge during the coronavirus crisis. Send us an email at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer is Zoe S. Matthews. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.